changed. Indeed, Lord Jesus, thank you for this truth of the resurrection from the dead, this truth, this inheritance that is ours as we put our trust in you. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, even as we delve into this great mystery, would you give us um, hope in you? Would you give us hope um, for what you will do for us at the last day when we see you face to face? And will you give us hope for today, um, the courage and the strength to continue to labor on, knowing that our labor is not in vain? And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We talked, I did a big summary last week, didn't I? That's how I got in trouble and I didn't get all the way through our passage. <laughs> but one of the things that I pointed out, and I hope, I hope you walked away with this, was that as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians, we saw in the beginning that Paul was very interested in doing, he spent a couple of chapters really going over what the gospel was. And he talked about the foolishness, the folly of the cross, and that that is actually God's wisdom. It seems like a folly to us. Um, human beings. We would never conceive of salvation in this way, of God himself being made weak in that way, of God himself submitting to that kind of death. Um, and so we would, never, we would never assume that salvation could come to us in that way. But, um, but in fact, God's wisdom is far, or uh, as Paul says, God's folly is far wiser than our wisdom. So he, he spent some time early on on theology, and then it seems as though he goes into all of these practical ideas, these practical ways of living that he's correcting them about. But remember that all of those practical things are really based on um, theology. They, they misbehave or they act out in ways that are not consistent with the gospel, and that demonstrates not so much um, that their behavior is terrible. It is terrible, and he's concerned about that, but mostly because their behavior masks and is produced by this disbelief. They don't fully grasp the gospel. The gospel hasn't trickled down into those um, deep recesses of their hearts and minds. They have not been transformed by the gospel in certain ways, even though they are already transformed. There is that already and not yet. They are saved. They believe in Jesus Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit. Um, Eternal life is theirs, and yet they continue to labor on, linger on in these disbeliefs in these fleshly behaviors. And so Paul spends much of the letter correcting that. So we saw that in chapters 5 and 6 with the immorality and lawsuits. We saw that in chapters 7 through 11 where he talks about uh, marriage and divorce and he talks about food sacrifice to idols and he gives a lot of instruction about that, a lot of argumentation about that too, convincing them, um, convincing them again essentially that there should be an ethic of love that they should, their behavior should really be motivated first and foremost by love for one another. Even though they have freedom to do certain things in Christ, yet they should be constrained by love. And that really builds to chapters 11 through 14 where he talks again about love being the groundwork and the basis for their action um, in relation to each other. And he talks about it specifically in chapters 11 through 14 in light of corporate worship. What does corporate worship look like? How is that ethic of love played out in corporate worship? So he, remember, he talks about the ladies wearing veils. He talks about the Lord's Supper, which is even more, far more important to him than the ladies in the veils. And he talks about spiritual gifts. So last week we started to delve in. It's as though he's come around back to some theology here. Certainly all of his behavioral discussion was rooted and grounded in the theology of the gospel. But now he gets back in chapter 15 to some explicit spiritual teaching. Some among them are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And he is so so vehement. (laughs) No, absolutely. There is. um, The dead are raised. If the dead are not raised then what in the world are we doing? What, what are we doing? And so he goes back to the basics at the beginning of chapter 15, as I said last week. Um, basically, he goes back to talk about the content of the gospel. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then remember, he talks about this delivering of tradition, that the imparting of the gospel is not just some kind of isolated proclamation. It's a proclamation that's rooted 
um, through this tradition that goes all the way back to the first apostles. And he certainly um, qualifies himself as one of the first apostles, even though he says that he is one untimely born, that Jesus appeared to him last, the raised Jesus. And that was one of the qualifying factors of an apostle, that they would have an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. So, of course, the twelve are considered apostles. Um, James, the brother of John, is considered apostle, and, um, and others as well who saw the risen Lord Jesus in the flesh. Um, and then we had this great summary of, um, of how to understand our own individual lives in light of the gospel. He's talking about, and I'm looking now at verse 9, he talks about um, himself, and he talks about his unworthiness to be an apostle. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And why? Because I persecuted the church of God. When he talks about himself elsewhere as being the chief of sinners, it's really because of that persecution that he engaged in. Um, he dragged off men and women who were of the way, as, as Luke says in Acts, who were Christians, so that they might be silenced through um, beating or whatever the Sanhedrin had in mind for them. Um, they would learn their lesson and stop talking about this Jesus person. Um, so that he sees as being one of his greatest sins. That, um, and it's still, he still labors on under it. You know, he knows that he's been forgiven, but he has such humility in light of the atrocity of his sin. And yet he labors on, as he says in verse 10, and this is just such a beautiful portrait of what it means to be a Christian in all of our weaknesses, in all of our recognition of our faults and our failures and our mistakes. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Isn't that beautiful? That could be one of those memory verses, you know, <laughs> something to put on your refrigerator. <laughs> by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's one of those, help me get out of the bed every day, Lord, because I need it. Um, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Um, it's almost like that serendipity prayer that goes along with the 12 steps. You know, there are things about me that I cannot change, and yet I can trust that God is in the midst of those. God is changing those in me as I am in relationship with him. Okay, and then also how interesting, too, that this grace given to Paul only makes him strive for the Lord even more. And that's what he says in the second part of verse 10. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And how amazing that the grace given, amazing grace given, causes us out of gratitude to strive and to work for the Lord. Not because we expect to receive any reward. We've already received our reward simply out of gratitude for what he's done for us. And he even qualifies it, saying, he acknowledges this. He's saying, well, it wasn't I that worked. It was the grace of God that is with me. Even as God accomplishes amazing things through me, um, what humility he recognizes, um, what faith he recognizes, that it is God himself who is working through him to accomplish these amazing things that he's doing. Okay. <laughs> Any thoughts or questions about that before I summarize 12 through 19, which we also looked at last week? We also talked about how it sounds like the creed, remember, the, um, this repetition of the gospel, um, and how neat to think about the creed when we say either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed in church on Sunday. We're essentially repeating back, hopefully, what we'll hear from the pulpit. Um, as a way of, of personally and corporately assenting to the gospel. Um, now he's going to get into his logical argument for the resurrection of the dead. He's already said, um, this is what we believe, this is what we profess, in our, essentially in our public profession of the faith. This is what we know happened because all of these people saw the raised Jesus. Um, and so it's not just one person's testimony, it's many people's testimony about having seen the risen Jesus. But now he's going to get into his logical argument. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some of them were saying, we won't be raised from the dead at the last day. And he's saying, poppycock, if, <laughs> which is one of my favorite exclamations, all those P's and K's. If, if if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, then of course 
we are also, we will also be raised from the dead because we are in him. Um, and he goes on with all of these ifs, if, if, if. Um, if there's no bodily resurrection for believers, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain. Why bother? Why bother believing if it's only for this life? Um, and that's where he ends up. It, again, if we're believing in vain, then sin remains and the dead are really dead. And he concludes, if our hope is only for this life, um, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Um, how sad if our hope in Christ is only for today and not for the future. Um, hope itself is a future forward-facing um, attribute, something that looks forward to a real, a real future. And so it's not even hope if we're living without hope for the resurrection um, even as we live in this life. Okay, so for today, um, let me begin at verse 20. In contrary to this, um, to this saying, if in Christ only, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, and I'm beginning at verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What a mouthful, <laughs> right? Well, starting at the beginning, we see um, that um, he uses this idea of first fruits to talk about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And remember, in the Old Testament, the first fruits of the harvest were those parts of the harvest that they then brought back into the temple to offer to God. They were um, dedicated, holy, special in that sense. So too were the firstborn children. Remember that there were special laws in the Old Testament law about those um, children, the son who was, who was firstborn being brought, um, whatever child opened the womb, as it were, being brought to the Lord and dedicated to the Lord um, with a special offering of, um, I can't remember if it's grain or a lamb or something like that. I think it is, actually, it's a blood sacrifice, I believe. But again, that offering, recognizing, Lord, you have given us this bounty and it belongs to you. We recognize that it belongs to you. And that's essentially where we get the concept of our tithes. You know, when we bring to, when we bring our own offerings monetarily into the church, it's this idea of the cream off the top of the milk that's been produced. It's this idea of the first, um, the best, um, this first acknowledgement of gratitude to the Lord who gives us all good things and then um, continuing on to enjoy the rest the other 90% ourselves, or however many percentage it is ourselves. So within this, how interesting that Jesus Christ being the first fruit, there's more to come. And again, I would imagine with the harvest, as you harvested the first bit of harvest, it's an act of faith to give that first bit to God. Because essentially you're saying there's more to come, right? <laughs> even if you haven't seen it, even if the grain hasn't ripened, you're still taking the grain that is ripe and you're giving it directly to the Lord. So this first fruit, there's an act of faith in that. There's an act of faith in saying Jesus is the first one raised from the dead and we are believing, we are trusting that there is a full harvest. And scripture bears witness to that. When we read Revelation 2, we see there's this promise and even the harvest imagery is used that um, all we who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. We too um, will, ar will arise. Thoughts about that? Questions about that image of the first fruit? Um, Paul starts to use, too, this image of, um, of Adam, comparing, um, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this um, idea of this 
um, all. Again, remember, all in Adam is all those who are descended from Adam. So it's the whole human race that dies. And it's because of sin we've fallen, we have inherited that spiritual aberration of sin or original sin. Um, so we too will die. And yet all those who are in Christ. So this is not a universal statement. This is not saying all those who are in Adam will be raised in Christ. It's no all those who are in Christ, who essentially are Christ's spiritual offspring, will be raised and made alive at the last day. And now he starts to get into the when of it. First Christ, and then at his coming, at his second coming, all those who belong to him. And then Paul gets into some of this interesting stuff about um, about what will happen at the end. You know, we see these little, it's a little apocalypse. We see these, we talked about Revelation last year, and just this, the ordering of when things will happen. Um, Jesus talks about what will happen at the end in his Gospels, in, in, the, in the Gospels. There's, in Matthew, Mark, Matthew and Mark, I'm trying to recall if it's in Luke as well, there's what's called a mini-apocalypse, where he tells them um, what the end will be like. The sun will turn um, red and the moon will get black and um, you'll need to run for the hills basically because the end is coming and there will be destruction. So there is this idea of destruction um, when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. These are all, every rule and authority and power is everything that would rebel against God. Every earthly thing, every created thing in rebellion against its creator. Um, and so that means, yes, that means fallen and corrupt governments, which honestly, in my opinion, is every government <laughs> has some kind of corruption in it. Um, it also means um, those instruments of, of war or things that we human beings have turned into being terrible things um, for the destruction of each other. It means um, anything that um, spiritually that opposes God. And so we see in Revelation even that, um, that Satan himself is put into the pit. Satan himself is destroyed at the end. There is that promise that he will be destroyed. But I love how, um, how Paul makes it so clear in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death itself um, flaunts God's authority. Um, God's will is for our life. Um, God's will is for us to be in his presence eternally. That was the hope in Eden. And certainly, um, I think he was, I love this Frank Limehouse phrase, shocked but not surprised, of course, um, when we fell into sin, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and death enters the world. Um, God knew it would happen on one level, right? And yet it's this terrible sadness, of course, because those beloved creatures, Adam and Eve and all of the rest of us in 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 connection um, means that we won't be able to live eternally in God's presence because sin has entered the world. And so, so death is a necessary evil for a time because were we to live on in our sinfulness in God's presence, were we to have access to the tree of life, which again, remember, he bars Adam and Eve from getting towards the tree of life, were we to have access to the tree of life while we persisted in our sin, can you imagine That'd be a terrible thing. When you think about any kind of, um, even our, our literature points to this, our secular literature points to this. Whenever in um, contemporary secular literature they talk about searching out eternal life or trying to find the fountain of youth, there's always this sadness because they realize we'll persist on in our, in our sin, in our imperfection, that we'll never be fully right and so living on in that sense, it's a terrible thing. And so thank goodness that the Lord prevents us from that by allowing, allowing us to die, by preventing us from um, eating from the tree of life. And yet, death itself is in opposition to God's will for humanity. And so the last enemy to be destroyed is death. How beautiful is that? A good thing to remember. So God has put um, all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus Christ. Essentially, Jesus will have the authority um, to destroy all of these evil things at the last day, and he will do it. And then, um, and then everything else um, that remains will still be under his lordship. And yet um, he's pointing out that Jesus himself is under the lordship of God the Father um, based on their works. You know, so that even though they are unified and equal 
as members of the Godhead, even though Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, yet still there is this unity of purpose and this diversity of function and work. Um, So that's where you get this sense where there's this hierarchy, and yet God is all in all. Um, So it's not as though Jesus and the Holy Spirit are any less than God the Father. No, they're unified, and yet God is all in all, and there's this beautiful function of of our triune God, and that will be seen by all at the last day. Okay. (laughs) Thoughts or questions, things that you notice or things that you want to point out or things that you want to go back and look at? Otherwise, I'll keep pressing on. Okay. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? He's going back to his arguments. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What an interesting little passage. (laughs) It's getting real now. um, He says how interesting that this, this first... Verse 29 is problematic. What in the world does he mean? He's going back to his logical arguments, but we're not quite sure what he means here because this is certainly not a practice that we endorse or that we do today. Um, But we think, one commentator um, thinks that, and I think this is a good argument, thinks that what he's talking about is vicarious baptism, some people being baptized on behalf of other people um, that maybe had faith but didn't get a chance to be baptized before they died. Um, this is a practice we think it, we, we see John Chrysostom later in the early church acknowledging that this was a practice in the early Christian church um, but it doesn't seem as though Paul's endorsing it and so we're not going to endorse it <laughs> even though he talks about it and he's saying because logically why would you do this if there was no resurrection of the dead why would you be baptized on behalf of those who had died who had faith in Christ if there's no resurrection from the dead. But he's, saying, he's not saying we do this. He's saying why do some people do this? So essentially he's not condemning the practice, but nor is he also condoning it. So we're not going to do it. <laughs> How's that for the bottom line on that one? Any thoughts about that? Isn't that a strange concept to okay, think about? Yeah. I think they do. Yeah. I know. That's a. I think it is a heresy. Well, you would just not. We're just not even going to touch it with intent. We're not going to go there, um, because there's this sense that faith is sufficient. Um, that there. Who believed? Well. I'm not sure what the Mormons do, but I think the idea here is that these Christians were identified, perhaps, although there's no way of knowing for sure, unfortunately, but the thought is that perhaps these Christians could identify those who were of faith and, and yet in their family or among their friends, and yet they had died before they got a chance to be baptized. And so there's this thought of a vicarious baptism. But again, Paul is not endorsing it in any way, shape, or form. He says they using it as a point of logic for saying, um, if there's no resurrection, why would people do this? It's a belief in the resurrection that leads them to do that. that yeah, Sandra? I think Paul was just such an intelligent, well-educated man that he kind of liked to give you the both sides of the argument, maybe. Not that he yes. is condoning, but he just yes. knows it. He, yes, he knows that both sides of the argument are there. We've seen that a lot in the way he argues for things. Isn't it frustrating how he'll point out something that he doesn't agree with and then say, but this is what 
but, you know, as a way of furthering his argument, but then he'll still say what he agrees with and what he actually wants them to do. We saw that with meat sacrifice to idols. You know, he said at one point, we know, we who are spiritual know that these so-called idols are not in fact gods at all. So whatever you do with them doesn't matter, essentially. But then later on, he said, no, they're not, they're demons. Don't have anything to do with them. And that's his bottom line. So he's kind of moving them along in his argument through, um, through ways that seem contradictory at first. So this one mention, again, not to dwell on it too much, he's not endorsing this practice. And we're still not really clear. There's not really a way to be clear exactly what was going on and exactly what is he pointing out that they're doing or that some people are doing. Um, but, Does our church yeah. our faith suggest that baptism is not essential? Um, well, no, we, we would say baptism, we would say faith is essential. Um, we would say, but some have believe and don't have a chance to be baptized. And the baptism is the outer sign of the faith that exists in, inner, in, the, in, in um, the heart and mind of a person. And so, you know, we don't believe that, it, but again, we don't believe that you absolutely have to be baptized in order to be raised from the dead. I mean, just think about the Catholic practice of infant baptism, where there's this anxiety, if we don't baptize that baby, as soon as that baby's out, that baby's not going to be with Jesus, right? There's this fear, fear-based um, works. So the work is get that baby baptized as soon as you can, because the fear is, if we don't do that, the baby, if, she, if the baby's ill, the baby won't be with Jesus. But, but we... Why do we do infant baptism? Uh, well, that's, I would, I'm not even going to go there. I'm going <laughs> to, that's, that would take a whole series of classes another time. But I will say, Mary, if, um, if you didn't get, so we, we practice infant baptism essentially because it's the, it's the New Testament covenantal sign that's like circumcision that's essentially saying we are committing to, committed to raising our child in the faith. It's completed, the sacrament of baptism is completed essentially when the child is of age to be able to profess faith publicly on their own. And we see that being a confirmation. So confirmation is essentially the completion of the sacrament of baptism. But if you want to, there's tons more to read on that. And I'd even recommend to you Andrew's sermon from yesterday. It was great on infant baptism. I'm, I'm trying to get my husband to do that. Um, so, <laughs> so all that to say, I'm going to move on from vicarious baptism because we still don't know what it means and it's not going not to help us ultimately. Paul here, though, is saying he is suffering every day for the sake of the gospel. He is putting his life on the line. Why would he put his life on the line if this life is all there is? If this, if this is all we have, we want to guard it and protect it, um, and we want to um, do whatever we want in it and not be hampered by some kind of future hope. But no, he is willing to um, be in danger for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to fight beasts at Ephesus, as he says, because he believes in the resurrection. And he's not alone in that, of course. Um, so many other apostles, so many of the martyrs of the early church uh, it, what an amazing faith they had in um, the, the reality of our resurrection from the dead. It's that that fuels this ability to go to our deaths without fear um, and to even allow ourselves to be at risk of death for the sake of the gospel without fear. And again, that's a spiritual gift. But um, So Paul is saying, you know, again, this argument. Then also, he has another if in the middle of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, and he's quoting Isaiah um, let's see, he's quoting, hold on, let me make sure I get it right. Yeah, he's quoting Isaiah 22 here. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die if the dead are not raised. Um, and this goes back to what he said in verse 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people um, most to be pitied. Essentially, he's saying, if, if, there's no if this life is all there is, then let's live it up. <laughs> Don't you see that in the way those who embrace that kind of hedonism, the anything goesism? It, it's really sad because what it is is it says this life is all there is. I have to live for the moment. I'm going to do whatever I want with my body. I'm going to drink and wake up in the morning with um, in a drunken stupor because it doesn't matter. 
nothing matters. Um, it's this sense of nihilism, essentially, that leads into hedonism. It's this sense of there's nothing out there, there's nothing to live for, so I'm only going to live for myself. And it results in this extreme selfishness that's actually very self-destructive. Um, and it appears as though some of these Corinthians were doing that. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. He had talked to them before about this kind of immorality and this kind of drunkenness and this kind of lifestyle. They had said it's because they're free. And he's saying, no, it's because you don't believe in the resurrection. If you believed in the resurrection, if you had real hope for the future, you would realize that this life does matter. And that, um, and that working uh, and, and living for Christ in this life bears fruit in the next and is worth doing. Um, so any thoughts about that? Any questions about that? I just, one illustration for it is, um, I remember my, my parents and I, uh, when we've spent time together, we have these little, as my siblings used to say when I was single, it was like, they said, Deb, you don't need you don't need someone to be in relationship with because you get to go on these romantic getaways with our parents all the time. <laughs> As a single adult daughter, I'd go with them to Europe. I'd go to, we'd go away in the woods and have you know, just a nice time in, you know, at a snow cottage, reading and walking. And we, had spent, we spend a lot of our time walking and talking when we're together. And this walking, always in nature, very often hiking in different places, and I'm always, I was, I've been amazed over the years to realize how much my father knows about certain things. He's just, about a lot of things. And same with my mother. But one of the things that my father is particularly interested in are trees. And he has a green thumb like you wouldn't believe. Their whole house is full of all of his plants, his babies that he's nurtured and kept alive for so many years. But out, out, in, the, out in the woods, he can identify different species of trees all around him. And he said to me once, do you know, Deborah, if I wasn't a Christian, I would worship trees. Oh. <laughs> They're just so beautiful. <laughs> he's such a tree hugger. He just he's, he said, I could see how the ancient pagans worshipped trees because they're so beautiful. There's something so majestic um, about them. And so, but he, but he believes in Jesus and he believes in the resurrection. And so understanding that and saying, if you didn't believe in the resurrection, how would you live is an important question because it helps you understand, well, how, but how do I live because I believe in the resurrection, seeing the juxtaposition of it. So, yes, he enjoys the trees and he learns their names, but he doesn't worship them. <laughs> he enjoys them, um, but he doesn't worship them. Um, so what would, it, what would life be like if there was no resurrection? What would you do? Um, you know good question to ask ourselves. Well, that's what the Corinthians were doing. And so now we're going to get into, um, in verse 35, we're going to get into some of this question about the how of resurrection. And then towards the end of the chapter, we'll look at the when of the resurrection. So beginning at verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. This beautiful and poetic. He's using these images to discuss the how of the resurrection. You've got to imagine from a Greek perspective, and remember we talked about this Gnosticism, that they're in danger of endorsing, that sort of seeped into their mindset. This, and one of the aspects of this strange mysticism mystic Gnosticism was to say that only the spiritual is good, only the mind is good, our earthly mind, and the, and the stuff of the flesh, this stuff that hampers me, this dang sciatica, this bodily deterioration, this is for the birds. This is not something that God loves. And the Christian point of view is so different than that pagan Greek point of view that Gnostic point of view. The Christian point of view is rooted in the Jewish point of view that goes back to Genesis where God says, it is good 
after the creation of the whole material world, world, again and again the Lord says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And so even though we see this deterioration of our bodies, the decay and the corruption, even though our bodies will rot in the ground, Paul is saying again here, no, it is good. And so this Greek mindset, how could something rotting in the ground then become something good and amazing? And so at the very least they would have said, you know, even if they couldn't believe in a bodily resurrection, they would have said, well, it must be that 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 corruptible case of the body is then um, torn away by death and the soul is freed. And so they, could, they did believe in the immortality of the soul, but they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. And Paul here is asserting a bodily resurrection. And the way he asserts it, the analogy that he uses is so beautiful. This analogy of a seed. Um, yes, you sow the seed. Um, as any gardener knows, you put the seed in the ground or the bulbs. I like to think of bulbs. And they don't look like much, do they? Um, they look even kind of dirty and gross and who knows what will come of it. Um, it's an act of faith to grow a garden, to sow a garden, to plant a garden. Um, the seed or the bulb goes under the ground and we don't see it for a while, right? But then as it grows, it becomes something entirely different. It becomes something beautiful, something full of life, something green, something growing, something edible, something um, floral and beautiful. Paul is using this analogy to talk about um, that darkness, even the burial of the body, um, in contrast with the raising of the new body that we will have. And he's still, again, talking about this flesh. We will be we will have bodies when we are raised from the dead. So again, he talks about that difference between the dying of the body, the burying of this body in this life, and the contrast with the raising of the heavenly body. So he talks about that, that difference between the heavenly body and the earthly body, between the seed and the plant that then will grow. But then he also talks about this question of identity, that... Um, that there will be a particularity of identity that remains. And he points to two things to talk about that. He talks about the seeds. You don't plant, um, you don't plant tulip bulbs and expect to see an apple tree grow. You plant tulip bulbs and you expect to see tulips. Um, you, you, know, you plant one kind of seed and another kind of plant grows. That's a way of saying we're not going to become this amalgam of all of the spirits of the world. Have you heard this idea? If you listen closely, this is what our contemporaries outside of the church believe in about the afterlife. They believe that we are will be raised spiritually or somehow that we live on spiritually, but we will all become one. What's the 70s song? We'll become one with the spirit in the sky. Right? There's this idea of this amoeba-like spiritual magnetism that all of these individual human spirits will become one as we're melded into this oneness of this giant spirit of the universe. makes me want to barf to talk about it because it's so antithetical to the Christian particularity of who God is and how he's distinct from creation and who we are as distinct individuals. It's this melding, this monism is what it's called. It's everything is one-ism. And if you meet someone who's a little bit new age, you'll find it, won't you? You'll hear them talking about that. I remember, I think I've probably talked about it here. I remember doing one um, funeral once where I was brought in to do the funeral, but the family didn't believe, but the deceased man was a believer. And so hearing his children one after one talk about how dad is with us right now in this room. He has gone to be one with all of the spirits of the universe. And I'm like, no, no. No, no. <laughs> and I had like two minutes to get up and undo all of that and try to say something that was distinctly Christian. Um, this is what our culture believes about. This is the predominant um, viewpoint. Once you hear people talk um, about what they actually believe about the afterlife, they talk about this pantheism. They talk about everything becoming one. No, Paul is saying Christian resurrection is different. It will be particular. We'll be able to say, that's mom. <laughs> when we see her on the other side. We'll be able to recognize each other, even if it takes us a little bit, just like it took the, the disciples a little bit to figure out, oh, this is Jesus right here in front of us. 
when they saw him raised from the dead. Um, and he talks about this particularity not just with the seeds that grow into specific plants, but he talks about it with the difference in kind between the heavenly bodies. He talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the differences between the stars. There is a uniqueness to each one, one of those heavenly bodies, even though there will be a uniqueness to each one of us as individuals when we're raised from the dead. Thoughts about that or questions about that before I keep going? Sorry, no, one, here, go ahead, Kate, and then we'll... It's a mystery. That's right. It's part of the mystery. It's part of the mystery, but we can trust. We can trust in that particularity of it. We're not going to be lost on the other side, and that's encouraging to me. That idea of melding in with everyone else. Yes, we'll be one and we'll be united in Christ in a way, a closeness that wasn't, wasn't possible here on earth, even as we're all fully righteous and no more sin remains. Um, but we won't, our identities won't be lost. Which is nice. Mary. Where does Paul really talk about body? He talks about a seed. Yeah. He talks about earthly bodies. Stars, the sun. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's very unclear. I, I Tell me more. I don't that we're going to have a physical body and that we are going to be separate. We're going to be separate from animals and from birds. And so... I would disagree about that in this section. I think I can see I can see I could see the doubt coming in in the section I'm about to read about a natural body versus a spiritual body. Um, but in in light of the context, um, so again the question is how is this clearly about a bodily resurrection and not just about the immortality of the soul? Um, again, his images he's using these images where there is a material aspect on both sides. He's talking about a material thing of the material seed and the material plant that will come from it. That would have been in in this context, in this context of these pagan Greek um, people who were influenced by Gnosticism, that would be incomprehensible. You wouldn't even talk about material things if you're talking about the afterlife. It would just all be this spiritual head knowledge stuff. Um, We'd be like those souls floating around um, just um, without any substance or material substance. Does that help a little bit? I think, too, when you look at the big picture of Scripture, one thing to continue to affirm is when we get to the last bit of Revelation, remember Revelation 19, 20, 21, as the new Jerusalem descends, we get this clear idea that heaven, what is heaven? Heaven is not a spiritual place that exists solely spiritually. Heaven is the place where God is enthroned and fully worshipped. And so heaven essentially exists now to that extent that there is somewhere, somehow, a place where Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully exalted and worshipped, surrounded by the hosts of heaven. And yet that place will become one with earth as we know it. And so all of this earth and this world will be destroyed, and yet there's this idea of it being remade. So the New Jerusalem doesn't just exist up there in the clouds. All this idea of the clouds and anything with clouds and harps and wings, us getting wings, is poppycock. It's not even in scripture. Now there's this idea that heaven itself will descend to earth. And John in his visions really understands that as being the place where the throne of God is, is now going to be in the very midst of his creation, which is now fully perfected, fully renewed, without sin or death sickness or dying or sighing or suffering or sorrow. Um, So it's a very physical viewpoint. And so it makes sense within that physicality of heaven and the new earth being united, there's also this idea of a physical body being given to us as we're raised from the dead. Um, The other thing to point to is Jesus' own bodily resurrection. He ate fish, remember, to show them that he was really physically there. His bodily literally departed out of their midst. Um, and yes, he somehow could get into a locked room, but he also ate the fish, <laughs> which makes getting into the locked room even more of a mystery. Does that help a little bit, Mary, with that? Okay, thank you. I'm going to keep going so that I can, I can finish up um, today. So continuing in verse 42, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. 
It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So do you see, Mary, how I think this paragraph, more than the paragraph that preceded it, would cause some to doubt a bodily resurrection because of his language about spiritual versus natural. But again, this idea, he's tying it into um, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the fact that um, upon his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus has um, then given to his followers um, who believe in him the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was something so important for them at Corinth. Um, and so he's, he's actually associating the mind, the psyche, the soul with the natural body. And this idea of the spirit is something different, um, a renewed spirit. Um, the idea of the flesh being not just this stuff, this material stuff, but also the fleshliness of the sinfulness of our own minds. Um, and that will be totally transformed into being in the image of Christ. So just as we were made in the image of God, made just like Adam, like the man of dust, um, just like we have borne also the sin of Adam and his original sin um, in this life, in the next life, we'll bear the image of Christ. We'll be made perfectly in his likeness without sin. Um, and, um, and our spirits will abound in a different way. Does that help? Okay, I'm going to keep going. Um, verse 50 I tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, I could read it every day and just be encouraged by it. Isn't it beautiful? Um, so this is the when of the resurrection we hear. We hear this, that it will happen at the last trumpet like this. The twinkling of an eye is like a wink. Um, it will happen as quick as a wink. Um, we will be raised. Those of us who are dead will be raised. And those who are still alive, who are in Christ, when the last trumpet sounds, they'll be changed they will somehow be changed. Um, and this inheritance um, is something that will be given to us. Our flesh and blood will be transformed. Um, and this transformation, he likens this transformation to putting off one set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes. The verbs hint to that kind of language. Isn't that amazing? Throwing away the old dirty rags of our sinful flesh and blood, of our um, decayed bodies, of the ashes, of our remains that are in the ground, hopefully, and not, I don't like it when people spread their ashes everywhere, but God can still raise them from the dead. Um, those remains, our bodily remains, will be transformed. The perishable will be put off, and like a new set of clothes, we will put on the imperishable. Our mortal body will be put off, and we will put on, um, like a new suit, immortality. And um, this will be the final, the final, um, the final aspect of our salvation. Our salvation is secure now, and we know it now, um, and yet it isn't fully realized until that moment when we put off death and we put on 
imperishability, immortality in our new bodies. Um, And he goes to this summary of the gospel here in verses 56 and 57 after this beautiful hymn, a a taunt. (laughs) Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Remember, again, that death is destroyed as an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, But this idea of um, of the gospel just being summarized, death doesn't have a sting for those of us who have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, those of us who have failed to keep the law and have recognized our failure to keep the law, who have received forgiveness because of God's great gift in Jesus Christ, for us, death is um, nothing to be afraid of. For us, death is, is something even to be laughed at and taunted because death doesn't have the final say. And that's really what he's getting at right there in verse 56. The victory belongs to Jesus Christ. And in belonging to Jesus Christ, it belongs to us as well. And so he moves on, and I'm just going to finish up right here with the last verse. He talks about, he again summarizes the gospel here with this um, atoning sacrifice of sin that we saw in the, as he talked about the cross in the beginning. And the cross and the resurrection are so tied in together. Again, our forgiveness and this promise of eternal life go hand in hand. And then he gets to the what then now. <laughs> so what? What do we do? And he goes to it in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I've actually been reflecting on that phrase a lot. Your labor is not in vain, especially with the development this last weekend with my sciatica. Your labor is not in vain. Do not despair. Your work in this life is not in vain. You're living your life to the glory of God. Your obedience, um, your, um, your, your struggles, your sorrows, your suffering, all of that is not in vain. Um, again, he's encouraging them, don't give up and just go eat and drink for tomorrow we die. No, labor on in gratitude for what God has done and in expectation of what he will do. Um, So again, there's this idea of steadfastness, standing upon the rock of the gospel, um, looking in real faith and hope to what will happen in the future. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your death for us. Thank you for the way you suffered on our behalf that we might be forgiven and free. And we thank you, Lord, for this aspect of our inheritance in you, that because of forgiveness in you, death has no sting because we know our sin has been atoned for. Our guilt is gone. The law has no effect upon us. The guilt um, doesn't remain, but in fact, we have hope of eternity. Thank you, Lord, that in you we will we will die but death will not be the final word for us we will be raised at the last day and so even as we continue to labor on and linger on in this life as we get frustrated with things as we face things that seem insurmountable to us as we um, are frustrated with the sins of other people give us strength not to give up um, not to sway or depart from um, your will and your purpose for us But give us grace to labor on um, in the places where you've put us um, with steadfastness in light of the great and glorious future that we have in you. And so we thank you for this and we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.